Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. But um, anyway, um, I, you know, I'm just like you guys. Um, I'm just a guy in Kaya. I've been here since there were three of us. It was the pastor, uh, the pastor's uh, to-be uh, sister-in-law. It was like a small town back then, and, uh, but not like Arkansas. We went, to, we went down to Springfield so that we could go barn swinging with the international students to give them a cultural uh, experience. You know, we wanted them to have something to take home. And the first year we went, there were pads. It was real nice. And the next time we went, it was gravel because the, the barn had burned down, and there were no pads, and I was like, oh, man, good thing we have waivers, right? So, um, but no, we, we do things safe now. We, we've really cleaned up our act, and we don't, we don't barn swing over gravel anymore. So I'm going to talk to you guys from Isaiah 6, and I want to, um, Isaiah is a book that means a lot to me. I mean, it really has helped me in terms of putting my Bible together. I'm still working through it. I have so much to learn from this book, Um, but I thought, you know, if I'm going to be given an opportunity to preach, I better preach from Isaiah, because this book is awesome, and it shows us a man who receives a vision. I remember our worship leader, uh, Uriah, a few years ago, he preached about uh, the first step toward vision is to have a vision of God, and Isaiah is the perfect example of that, because in chapter 6, you know, uh, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, like before Jesus even comes, which is remarkable. And it says that in John 12, 41, that he actually saw his glory. Um, so open your Bibles um, to Isaiah chapter 6. That is where we're going to be today. And I want to give you guys some context for what we're covering today. The kingdom is divided Okay, and so you've got Israel up north. Sometimes they're called Ephraim. If you read Hosea and Amos, you might find them called Ephraim up there. And it was a lot like this room. It was like Ephraim and then Judah down south, wherever south is. Yeah, and Judah was down south. So you had Israel and then you had Judah. And they're they're just, you know, Judah, it's called Judah because it was Benjamin. And Benjamin is really tiny. It's a small tribe of Israel. There's 12 tribes. And, uh, well, 13 if you count, like Ephraim and Asa thing. Right, Brandon? Yep. So, um, so yeah, so... So they just kind of named him after the bigger guy, you know, and that's common today, you know, you just kind of go by the bigger guy's name because it's easy, right? So it's like, yeah, like, I don't know, I'm with Miles and FOI, so sometimes, you know, when I introduce myself, I like to say, like, yeah, this is Miles, he's my, he's my man in ministry, ministry. I'm, his, I'm, his, I'm his boy, but yeah, nations do this too, you know, you, you know. So, yeah, so I'm with Judah down south, you know. So, but this was a problem, actually, because, you know, what was happening was bad. I mean, it was a time of conspiracy, disease, and war. And when I say conspiracy, I really mean, like, people, like, killing the entire royal family and, like, people having to, like, having to, like save the future king so that he could one day rule. Like, crazy stories like that. 
And so not conspiracy theory, but like actual conspiracy and conspirators. Isaiah's ministry lasted through four kings, and he's the first of the major prophets. So you guys, some of you are in Genesis. And um, bear with me as I lay out the context, because there is a lot of context. It's going to be a little bit academic for a while, okay? And I would say don't even take notes. Just download the PDF later. I would say just read it, read the screen, download the PDF later. And so he's the first of the major prophets, and some of you guys are in Genesis class, and you see how Genesis is a book of beginnings, and it's, it's defining in terms of biblical terms. A lot of first mentions are in the book of Genesis. So Isaiah is very similar to that, in that it's the first major prophet, and he, uh, a lot of the biblical themes reach a pinnacle in the book of Isaiah, and you see messianic themes reach a height in the book of Isaiah. And so we're going to be talking about that today. Um, he, so his book reveals Jesus Christ and his kingdom 700 years before he came, all without perfect understanding. I mean, he kind of knew what he was talking about, but not really, not like you and I, because we have the New Testament, and we have the four gospel accounts. Okay, and so in 1 Peter 1, 9 through 12, it, it, it tells us that the prophets really didn't understand everything that they wrote, which is remarkable because of the accuracy with which they prophesied through the Spirit of the Lord and the inspiration of God. Okay, and so the, the uh, north of Judah, Israel, is, it was bad. It was bad news. Hosea 12.10, God said to Israel in Hosea, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. It sounds a lot like Hebrews 1.1. You can jot that down and look later. But Hosea 13.9, God tells Israel what has happened to them. They were uh, being destroyed, taken into captivity because of sin. God sent uh, Assyria. The capital was Nineveh. These people were the worst terrorists of the day. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine like our nation being overrun by terrorists, but the things that they would do to their victims are unspeakable. And I'm not even going to tell you because it makes my skin crawl. You know, I had a uh, teacher when I was in like, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade. He came and he talked about Jonah and why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And it just really like left a mark on me because I couldn't believe how ruthless they were to the people that they conquered. And so God actually allowed Israel's sin to reach a point where he was okay with them being chastened or chastised um, by the nation of, or by the people, by the Assyrians. And they came down and they would take Israel captive. And so God says to Israel, though, about this, Hosea 13, 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. And so he's, he's beckoning them, like, turn back, turn back to me. You guys have destroyed yourself because there's a principle in the earth. When you plant a seed, it grows, right? There's a principle of sowing and reaping. And so he brings their attention to the fact that they are only reaping what they've sowed. And we're a lot the same. We reap what we sow, but God's heart is that it would turn us back to our Savior. Okay, and so Isaiah 56, 7 gives us the scope of Isaiah. It's global. It's for all nations. Isaiah 56, 7 says, 
For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. And Jesus himself quotes Isaiah in Mark eleven seventeen, And he says, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. So wherever you're coming from this morning, I believe that God has a word for you through the book of Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, through his word. And uh, Isaiah, I believe, is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Now, I can't say that I've personally, like, tallied everything, but check me out on it on your own time. Um, Isaiah tells us a story of God's people created to worship him alone, and, but they refuse and they rebel to their own demise. God promises a coming Jewish savior, uh, a king who would suffer and die in the place of sinners and offer eternity with him in his kingdom, and then come again to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And then the book ends with a final warning of eternal judgment by fire, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, and then off into eternity. Now, does that book sound familiar to anyone else? Because yeah. it sounds a whole lot like the Bible, right? So um, that's for you Bible students. So the themes of Isaiah, like I said, uh, reach a prophetic pinnacle in Isaiah, the theme of the whole Bible is in two verses, Isaiah uh, 9, verses 6 and 7. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah and 66 books in the Bible. And the first 40 chapters of Isaiah speak to God's judgment. And then the last 27 chapters of Isaiah speak to salvation. And this is how your Bible is also broken down. There's a whole lot more. It's really exciting whenever you look at it chapter by chapter, which I'm still working through and, and fine-tuning, and I don't want to give all of that stuff away because uh, it's fun and it gets you in, in the book. So uh, look at it sometime, how the chapters align with the books. There are four servant songs of Isaiah, and they're called servant songs by Jewish people and Christian people alike. So people who don't accept Jesus call them the servant songs. And these speak to the fact that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one that can save us from our sins, is a servant. And we're learning that in the book of Mark right now. I'd like to put in a plug. If you have uh, been looking for a Bible study, you can join mine. Uh, you can <laughs> raise your hand if you're a Bible study leader. Uh, yeah, we're in the book of Mark where we are learning how to uh, break down God's word. And, you know, the key verse is Mark 10, 45. And it tells us that God came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I haven't taken the time, shame on me, to memorize it. But um, he came to serve, to love and forgive, right? And so Isaiah 53, the very last servant song, is the first gospel in your Bible. And it's from the vantage point. It's from the very witness of Jehovah, of the self-existent one. So you're not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. This is God's gospel. It's, it's amazing. I wish that we had time to read it because it's so good. The most common argument against Jesus being the foretold suffering servant in the fourth servant song because Isaiah 53 really elevates the idea that he's the suffering servant. And so not just the servant, but the suffering servant, the one that would die for the sins of the world. The common argument against Jesus being that in Isaiah 53 is that this, the uh, suffering servant is actually a nation or nations. And so 
You know, a lot of people today, Jewish apologists, will say, no, that can't be about Jesus. We, we're Jewish. We don't accept Jesus. You know, and then they'll say, uh, well, you know, uh, it's obviously talking about the nation of Israel because um, the nation of Israel was led as a lamb to the slaughter, right, in the Holocaust. And I would never seek to minimize the horrors that occurred. <laughs> but this is absolutely about the one Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And, and you know, uh, there's a lot of great testimonies even during the Holocaust, you know, of, of people that had faith um, and help and Christians who harbored Jews at the risk of their own lives. And then they ended up in concentration camps too. And so you even see pictures of Christ during that time. And there was light and darkness. A dim light shines brighter in a dark place. And so, but here we are referring to the Jewish man, Jesus Christ. And so Dr. Michael Brown, who is a scholar of many ancient languages, uh, says in, in, in his book, he's a Messianic Jew. Um, some of his theology is different than ours. So if you look him up, just know he is off on end times prophecy, I believe, and maybe some other things. Uh, go to LFBI for your theology. But he's brilliant in terms of reading the Jewish text and being an apologist for the faith. And he's our brother in Christ. And I love him. I hope that I get to meet him one day. And I really appreciate his work, and we probably have a good conversation. Um, so he says, interestingly, the national interpretation is not found once in the Talmuds, the Targums, or the Midrashim. In other words, not once in all the classical foundation, foundational authoritative Jewish writings. In fact, it is, it is not found in any traditional Jewish source until the time of Rashi, who lived in the 11th century CE, for almost 1,000 years after Jesus. Not one rabbi, not one Talmudic teacher, not one Jewish sage left us an inter interpretation showing that Isaiah 53 should be interpreted with reference to the nation of Israel as opposed to a righteous individual. Despite the fact that these verses from Isaiah are quoted in the New Testament and were often used in Jewish-Christian debate, and uh, that's Dr. Michael Brown. I read his credentials, but they're way too long. Um, so Isaiah 1, let's, um, I told you to turn to Isaiah 6, and you can just stay there. I do want to get into the book of Isaiah now that I've shown you kind of just how rich and full and irrefutable um, the fact is that Isaiah saw Christ's glory and to the point that you cannot refute that an entire chapter is devoted to God's gospel on the Lord Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and future reign in his kingdom in Jerusalem. You cannot refute that. So I'm not angry about that. I'm just like really excited about it. So Isaiah 1, 1 through 2, uh, Isaiah means Jah has saved. And how great is that? The vision of Isaiah, the vision of Jah has saved. Jah, a contraction of Jehovah, the self-existent one. It's not selfish that God demands glory from you because he is all there is. I'm an artist. You, a lot of you guys are artists. Miles, I saw your paintings, bro. Good job. And um, MJ, and who else was in, in the show? Joel, yeah. Oh, the diamonds. That was, okay, so um, check out the art show over there. But we understand as artists that 
uh, whenever we make something, it's a reflection of us. It ought to reflect us. It ought to say something that we care about. But a lot of people have a disconnect in their mind whenever they think about God. They think that somehow it is selfish for God to demand his artwork to reflect him. And how crazy a thought is that? I would like to point out how silly the world is for having that thought. Because, hey, I mean, postmodern artists even admit that their art is a reflection of them or of some kind of thought that they, that they have. And they can't even explain why they have a thought life. But that's a whole other topic. <laughs> and so the vision of Isaiah, the son of Emotes, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, so this is really my first non-key point one that is kind of a key point, is that that spiritual sight begins at salvation. Okay, and so, and it continues in the gospel, keeping our eyes on the cross. And and this is one of the things that I want to shine light on today through the word is that we um, can keep our vision fresh by keeping our vision on the cross, on his death and his resurrection, and not focusing on having our stuff together, but rather what brings glory to him because he did that for us. Um, so 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 gives us the condition of the lost, which was me, which was you, if you've not called on the name of Christ. It says, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should, of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And in terms of seeing Christ for us, 2 Peter 1.19 uh, Peter is a man who saw Jesus in his glorified state in heaven, the transfiguration. You can go back in Matthew and read about it. But Peter himself says, after seeing the, the, the transfigured, fully illuminated Jesus Christ, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. This is a guy that says he heard the audible voice of God. And so you may have uh, spiritual visions or things in your dreams, but God is more sure than those things. And it's better to put your trust in this book than in any kind of dream that you have. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well, I do well too, that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Okay, so this is good. This is good till you see Jesus. And uh, so just hold on to this. And uh, okay, so we're going to talk about Isaiah 6 now, and I wish that we could, we could read the first five chapters, because it's amazing how they correspond with the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, but basically, Israel is in rebellion. They're going to go in, into captivity. Judah is following the same path. Now Judah is going into captivity. And God raises up Isaiah, and Isaiah observes the reign of Uzziah. And it looks as if he starts his prophetic ministry at the end of Uzziah's reign, but that God used Uzziah to get Isaiah ready for a vision of the man on the throne, really the God behind the man on the throne who's on the throne. And so for a time, maybe uh, inspirationally, we could say that we're a lot like Isaiah. Let's read this verse, Isaiah 6, verse 1. It says... In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So it was in the year that Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord 
high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I think of that song that sometimes we sing at funerals and when we say goodbye to brothers and sisters for a time. And uh, it's so good. But so a lot of us struggle with the fear of man. I'm definitely in that camp. I'm often praying like, God, remove this fear. It doesn't even make any sense. Um, And so, you know, sometimes we we fear men. We fear our authorities or we fear uh, a man on the throne either, even um, to the expense of our fear of God. And we know from Scripture that fearing, the God, fearing God is the, is the first thing we really need to concern ourselves. Not having a fear of God keeps men and women, countless men and women, out of heaven. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. How many of you can say that the passing of a loved one or um, just you know, the removal of a loved one, a loved one moves away, has caused you to consider your faith in a new way? I would say so, yeah, amen. And I know that God uses that, and, and that's really hard. Um, and God uses that. God does. If you think about your own life back to the time that the Lord used that, and I think, uh, you know, there's, there's some suffering there. Uzziah had the second longest reign out of any of the kings. There were no good kings in Israel. Uh, less than half of the kings of Judah you could say something good about. But Uzziah did a lot, a lot of good. A lot. I mean, there's like a whole chapter dedicated to the glory of Uzziah. I mean, he was, he was amazing. Um, and his name means jaw. Uh, jaw is strength, or something to that effect. Strength of jaw. I mean, sorry, strength of jaw. And so his name would have reminded him that he got his, his strength from, from the one that created him. Uh, but he lost track of that. Um, so Isaiah 6, uh, 2, hero. Okay, so we're in, we're in chapter 1, guys. Wait, no. I have mixed... Two different chapters together. This is wrong. That is from chapter, verse two is from chapter one. What was I thinking? Okay, let's move on. Okay, so 2 Chronicles 26, 5. Let's learn about Uzziah because he was the man uh, that unfortunately passed away. In 2 Chronicles 26, 5, and 16, it says, And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And I'm going to, A.V., skip the next few slides but it's a story of how the priesthood withstood him and said, No, Uzziah, it appertaineth not to thee to burn incense here. They said, Get out of here. Like, King Uzziah, like, you've done some awesome things, and you should be content in your place in, of the ministry of, of Judah. And perhaps, you know, maybe their thought was, Man, we need to pray for this guy, Uzziah. He might lead us into some kind of revival. Maybe that could reach up north to Israel. Who knows? But Uzziah had a selfish agenda. And it wasn't enough for him to serve as king. 
And so his pride got the best of him. He went in and he demanded to burn incense. And the crazy thing is God had mercy for a season. But it says that when he was wroth is when leprosy rose up in his forehead. When he was wroth. And there are some sins that uh, reach, a, reach a point of, of uh, you know, consequence. Uh, the consequences can be worse than others. I mean, I think there would have still been a consequence, but the Lord waited till he was wroth, until it was manifest to judge him. And everybody knew Uzziah, he's not really going to be king anymore. And so in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 19 says, show us how God... Oh, Sorry, Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19 show us how God commanded the kings to write their own copy of the law so that they can meditate in it night and day and fear God. And it's basically what it says. And if Uzziah would have received this command, he would have been prepared to withstand his temptation, his personal temptation from more power, more control. The pagan nations could go into any temple they they wanted. I mean, the kings could go into any temple they wanted and burn incense, sacrifice babies. That would promise them, like, victory in war. They're messed up. And Uzziah says, I'm way better than them. I'm not going to sacrifice babies. I'm just going to go into the temple of the Lord and burn some incense, you know. And, uh, but this cultural coercion that takes place, I mean, he just slides into, into sin, because uh, uh, he takes his eye, eyes off the Lord, apparently. Um, this really has a lasting effect in Israel. And key point one, and this is regarding Uzziah and his wrath um, and his re- rebellion. Rebellion is only a residual effect of first refusing God's word. I mean, if Uzziah was really meditating in the law, day and night, like Psalm chapter 1 says, like Deuteronomy 17 says, then he would have been able to withstand his temptation with, thus saith the Lord, as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. But he was not in the Word, so he wasn't equipped. And so rebellion is only a residual effect of first refusing God's Word. Isaiah 120, so in the same book here, but if you refuse and rebel... You shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Okay, so there are generational consequences to our sins. Regarding Uzziah's grandson, Ahaz, it says in 2 Chronicles 28.3, Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burnt his children in the fire. After the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And so our children pay the price for our sin. If you don't have children, your disciples pray, pray the, pay the price for your sin. Uh, they're probably praying for you too. But I, uh, you know, I, so what we see is, you know, a couple generations pass. Jotham does like, okay, I guess. But then already two generations later, they're doing baby sacrifice. And this is really the compounding effect that sin has generationally. And Sam touched on this this morning, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, but instead of revival, as Uzziah should have led the nation of Judah into, uh, he leads the nation into sin. And Isaiah 64, 6 says about the consequence of sin and, and our first birth, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses 
are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Key point two, and while, while all sin can be forgiven at the cross, you know, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before he gave up the ghost, uh, he said, it is finished. He did everything. He said that on the cross. What does that mean? It is finished. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While all sins can be forgiven at the cross, not all consequences are nullified. And this is clear by my life, by your life. There's some consequences of our sins that hold on. And for Uzziah, he was a leper in a several house or a separate house for 10 years and was co-regent with Jotham, Jotham his son. And so he was like a faux king in the background, you know. And he was quarantined. I mean, really his judgment was that he was quarantined because isn't that the sting of leprosy? You can't like talk to anybody. Everybody's got to be siloed when you get leprosy. It's like, don't talk to them. Don't touch them. They, they have to like cry out like, unclean, you know, all these kinds of weird things. So while all sins can be forgiven at the cross, not all consequences are nullified. And, uh, you know, I bring up Uzziah because perhaps Isaiah prayed for him. Perhaps he said, you know what, this is a man of God. His name means, you know, this great thing about God. Let's redeem the situation. Let's call the prophets together and have a prayer meeting. And, but we're not told if he did that. But God had healed a leper, Naaman the Syrian. I mean, Elijah had already come. Elisha had already come. The prophets were coming. And so God could have healed him, but his sin was so grievous, and God was making a point about sin and the sting of sin so much so, it didn't really matter what, uh, what is Isaiah prayed anyway. God had made up his mind. Uh, and we see that Jesus is manifest fully in the book of Isaiah. So kind of historically, you can see how we have to uh, recognize the sting of sin is death, okay, before we can get to the glorious vision of Jesus Christ. And everything in our flesh is death. And so even the, resurrection, the resurrected Jesus has nail-pierced hands. John 20, 27, even the resurrected Jesus has nail-pierced hands. And my consequences, he bears in his hands today. My eternal consequences. Okay, and so Isaiah 6, let's go back to verse 1, because we've got to go ahead and read the whole passage at this point. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we're seeing... Uh, Isaiah is seeing into heaven and seeing genuine worship in the heavenlies. This is all they do. Verse 4, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And we'll stop right there. Um, but we see this, these seraphims. And um, so Sam Miles did an episode on the postscript regarding uh, angelology. And so I would say go back and look that up and see, you know, there's not much data that we have on the seraphims. Basically, uh, what he said and what I see when I study is the same thing. And it's that they're like serpent-like creatures with wings, and that sounds kind of disgusting, you know. Um, <laughs> but that's glorious in heaven. I'm sure they're magnificent. But from my, like, carnal, like, earthly view, I'm like, flying snakes? Like, what's, why? But um, I'm sure they are, they are gorgeous. Probably like dragons with, like, without, like, all the ugliness. Like, maybe they have, like, pixie dust and, like... They're like rainbow colored or something. Uh, I don't really know. So, but you know, why does a snake need six wings? Because he's apparently, he's got to cover his face, he's got to cover his feet, and he's got to fly. And so that's why a snake needs six wings. And so verse three, (laughs) and one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, this is a better than a Branson show. I don't know, like, if you've ever been to the finale and they're like, everything just comes out, man. And they've got, like, trumpeteers, like, back there. And you're like, whoa. And, like, people are square dancing. But this is, so you've, this is like a show you guys have never seen. Because God is the, he is the master of understatement. And so in his courts, All these creatures can stand to do is cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, declaring who he is, how powerful he is. He's the God of war. He is holy. We can't touch him. He is a consuming fire. I mean, this place is full of smoke and, uh, you know, where there's smoke, there is fire. And in this case, that's true because Hebrews tells us that he is a consuming fire. Uh, But there's also an altar. All the things in the temple that you would see uh, in the temple and in the tabernacle are pictures of what's happening in heaven. And so if we move on, Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, this is another vision, another glimpse into heaven, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And Psalm 68.4 commands us, Sing unto, unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah, and rejoice before him. Um, everyone in heaven, key point three, and earth, everyone in heaven and earth is made to worship God. Everyone. So there are no exclusions. You know, some people say, ah, it's not for me, brother. And uh, no, actually, this is for you. Because Revelation 4.11 says, God didn't create anybody to not worship him. Everybody's going to worship him. 
Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he is God. John 4, 23 says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 3 of Isaiah 6, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The only other mention of this phrase, holy, 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 is in Revelation 4.8. Okay, and so I just want us to take note of that. If you are taking notes, that, that could be something uh, to write down. Um, but it points to God's triune nature. And um, my wife, my beautiful wife is here. I forgot to, but she's two in one right now <laughs> because <laughs> we're having a baby. And, uh, but yeah, she's awesome. And I preached to her last night in the kitchen. So thanks, babe. It was really funny. She's got a picture of it. So I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, babe. Um, so, but she was so encouraging. But yeah, she's two in one. But God is three in one. So, <laughs> we uh, decided we're going to name our daughter Everly Grace because we. <laughs> Because no, uh, we, want, we want to remind her that of God's everlasting grace for his children. And so, uh, My sister named her daughter Adeline Grace. I love that. Yeah. We thought about Adeline. Um, so God instructed his people to trust his words as their traditions failed to bring tra- uh, salvation. So their traditions failed to bring salvation, yet they continued in them. I mean, this, this is like us going through the motions. Like, we're coming to church, but we realize that it's really not sep- like separating us from our sin. And, uh, you know, there are cycles in life. Sometimes you, you find, like, man, I've got this thing. I've been coming for years, and um, the Lord can set me free in a moment of time with him that something like I do religiously over years can never set me free of. Right, And so God instructs his people to trust his words. And, uh, you know, there's really no excuse for not looking for God to do a new thing from an Old Testament perspective because God is abundantly clear that he would send his son. In the servant song, Isaiah 42, he said, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So he was abundantly clear. Guys, like, you should. You're Jewish. It's cool. I'll send a Jewish guy, and he's pretty suave. Like, he will, like, teach you guys, like, how to follow me. But they just totally didn't read that verse. And uh, people were like, well, you shouldn't use Bible verses like that. Well, I do all the time. John 12, 41 says, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Like, Isaiah saw Jesus Christ, and Jewish tradition has it that he was even sawn in half by wicked king Manasseh. Like, it's horrible. And so, um, for the fact that he saw Jesus Christ, Manasseh was so upset, apparently, he said, you know what, you're not supposed to see God. I'm going to saw you in half, and that's what he did. And then, so, he suffered for his faith, right? Right? In Psalm 47, regarding Jesus being in our Bible, 
we're still talking about holy, 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 and the fact that God is a trinity and the Father is sending his Son. Um, Psalm 47 says, Then said I, Lo, I am come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And in Hebrews 10, 7, in case we missed it, God wants us to know that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Hosea 13, 14. Isaiah, so Isaiah is after Hosea. Hosea prophesies to the upper kingdom Israel. And God's commentary on death is this. I will ransom them, and speaking of his people, from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Revelation 20, 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In Hosea 13, 14, it sounds a whole lot like Colossians 2, where it says that God, you know, the demons are always keeping track. They've got a ledger of all the sins that you've committed. Like, just in case, you know, they can accuse you. Um, but God nailed those things to his cross, and he left them there when he died on the cross. And forgiveness uh, in Christ is as simple as reaching out and receiving him today. Brandon, do I have till 12 or 12 10? Yes, sir. So bear with me, guys. I know we're going through a lot, and I really appreciate you guys paying attention, but please hang in there. I know Sam covered a lot today. And I just felt like I had to because this book is so awesome. Okay, so Zechariah 12.10 regarding Jesus in the OT uh, in the Old Testament. So Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because according to Psalm 110.1, David said that his son, which we found out this morning with Sam, that one of David's sons was Jesus, right? And so we find that out in the book of Matthew. But, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Let's pause right here, and let's notice how, can I go back here? Okay, the word me and him, am I still on? Okay, me and him, uh, those are different uh, pronouns. Are those pronouns? Yeah. yeah. See, they're pronouns. But they're different. It's me and him. You see that? So they shall look upon me. This is the Lord speaking. As one, uh, they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, my son. As one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the theme verses of the Bible. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, 
and peace. There shall be no end. Isn't that great? He doesn't just have a government that's not going to end, but it's perfect peace. And you know, he's not just a child. He's not just a son. He's not even just wonderful, a good counselor, a good friend. Uh, He's not just the mighty God, but he's my everlasting father. If you've called on him by faith, he's your everlasting father. And he is the Prince of Peace. And how many know we need, we need a Prince of Peace? I mean, the whole world is calling out, let's globalize, let's all get together. But, I mean, you see in a lot of quarters of the earth, you're going like, I don't know, man. I don't know how it's going to play out when we just, like, merge everything. So, especially because I'm a Christian. So... Micah 5.2, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. So Micah, who prophesies at the same time as Isaiah, says, hey, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, uh, from everlasting. So you know anybody who was born in Bethlehem who has lived forever? In eternity past. His name is Jesus. Now let's go back to Isaiah 6 and verse 4. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. The, I, I believe it's the uh, flying snake's voices here is what it would be referring to because of the last couple verses. The voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Okay, so this is, you know, we still like to do this today. We still do the smoke and the crying uh, at the concerts, and so, but it's just kind of like a residual, like from heaven, it's like dripped down onto earth, and then it's like, ah. So, but it's way different, guys. This is magnificent, and this is the temple of God. I mean, this is like where God dwells in heaven. But First Corinthians three sixteen says, "Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you?" So if you've been born again by faith then you, in Christ, then you are the temple of God. And this kind of sound reverberating off the walls of heaven and shaking the post, this should be happening in your heart when someone says the name Jesus. Prayer, Lord, if the voices of seraphims or flying snakes move heaven's post, then let your perfect word move me. There's something wrong with us when God's word doesn't move us. It doesn't matter if someone else is saying it. I'm often challenged by like, well, what if you don't like the person? But it doesn't matter, guys. We ought to be able to receive truth when, when we hear it. And you know what? We do well just to receive it any old time we hear it. And uh, just say, man, yeah, that's humbling. I need to submit to the truth. Um, submission is a real problem for my generation. We don't like to submit to ultimate truth. We, we make judgments about people and about what they might believe or think. We put them in camps and we silo them. Uh, Brandon and I were talking about this uh, yesterday, how this can happen at times uh, where we will get kind of categorized and then we just can't listen to this guy over here because he's in this group. Um, and, but we do the same things too, where we kind of say like, well, that's a leader. Of course he would say that because he's trying to lead, you know. So, but we need to receive truth when we hear it because it's good for our souls, okay? 
And so in verse 5, it says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. And so because he's truly seen the Lord, and this is, this is a key for refreshed vision, is to keep our eyes on Christ. And as we do that, our vision will never grow old. And we'll always have things to repent of. We'll never arrive. We'll say, I don't know. I'm in LFBI, and I feel like I've never known any more or less. I think that makes sense. But I just feel dumber and dumber all the time. And I'm un- to the point I'm undone. I don't understand why God even loves me, why he even brought me here to this place, why I could be the only one in this space. The people he's calling me to, nobody else can reach. Why did he choose me to reach them? I'm undone. I'm unclean. I have unclean lips. What's on the inside, I find it always comes onto the outside. Uh, I can't, like, I, if I think a bad thought, I eventually, like, say it. Like, it's like, I can't, like, keep any secrets with myself, it seems like. So I'm a man of unclean lips uh, because, as Christ said, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And you can always know it is in someone's heart because that's what they talk about, right? And so that's why you guys like to witness to your classmates this semester at UMKC and other uh, in other schools. That's why you guys can't keep your mouth shut whenever the teacher's like, oh, the Bible condones slavery. And you're like, actually, teacher, uh, it, it definitely condemns slavery on the account of this verse where it says that men stillers should be put to death. But there's good news. Jesus forgives all sinners. And then you just like, oh. <laughs> so... Yeah, do it. Just be that Bible guy that's like, don't just let people walk on God's word. Just go ahead and out of love, take them aside and say, hey, you might want to go back to the class and be like, you know, Simon Simon would do this. Like, excuse me, teacher. Like, actually, I love you. And I just want to correct your theology. So, but... uh, Simon actually used a painting to uh, share the gospel in one of her classes. It was really cool to hear about um, because she made the point, if every painting has a painter, then what do you think when you look at the world, right? And so she got that from Psalm chapter 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Key question, do I prioritize confessing and repenting of my own sin over finding fault in others? Do I prioritize confessing my own sin? A little bit of introspection with the word of God, something on the outside coming in to fix me because the answer is not within myself. Do I prioritize confessing and repenting over my own sin, over finding fault in others? And this has to be a daily practice. We have to do it. We can't just say, like, we're going to do this on Sundays and then be done um, because you know how bad we are. Romans 10 8 and 9 gives us the answer to salvation. And uh, if you're not saved today, I'd ask you to look at this verse with, the, with someone after the sermon. Uh, but the Bible promises if we call on the name of Jesus, and if we believe that he died in place of our sins, that God will save us through the power of Christ. Not our own power. We have nothing to bring. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 and 10 commands us believers to confess our sins. 
And in James chapter 5, we see that we should confess our sins to our brothers. I, may, I remember many a time that I've confessed something, uh, like Brandon says, ucky in my heart. It always sticks with me. I like that. I'll probably use that with Everly. Uh, you say ucky, right? Yucky. Yucky? Yucky. Okay, that's better. Um, <laughs> ucky sounds like a toddler speech, but yucky is like m- way more like mature. And uh, so... If you got something yucky, you gotta you gotta tell a brother. Get some get some praying for you. James five says that that you can be healed that way of whatever you're carrying, of prayers of, of other people. If you're a believer, uh, so verse six of Isaiah six. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. So key point four, we see that this seraphim had come unto Isaiah, and he took the coal from off the altar. The solution to my sin problem is not from within myself. It can't be. I was born in sin. You know, so the solution to my sin problem, whatever it is this morning, I don't know what you guys are struggling with or what God has convicted you with through Sam's message or during this time, but the solution is not from within your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The best missionary to ever walk the face of the earth, Paul, the apostle Paul, who had a radical transformation. It's irrefutable that he met Christ by, on his own personal account, which should be the same for you and I. There's fulfilled prophecy that validates the Bible as God's word, and then there's real-life transformation. By the way, whose life has been transformed by the word of God? Amen. And so he says, he devotes a, an entire chapter in your small New Testament, only 27 books, very humble compared to the 40-book Old Testament. But he devotes a whole chapter to talking about how wicked his flesh is and how much he can't trust anything from within his heart, not even the bottom of his heart. If he keeps on with self-discovery, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And so that is his conclusion. It should be our conclusion as well. Verse 7 of Isaiah 6, And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. Thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. You know, he doesn't save the whole nation of Israel or Judah by osmosis. He heals a man. He says, your sin is forgiven. I'm calling you out. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That is God's forgiveness. As far as the east is from the west. That is complete forgiveness. He didn't just cover our sins like we learned about in the Genesis series when God uh, took an animal and he made animal skins. Uh, He didn't just cover them, but he washed away our sins by the blood of the lamb. And in verse 8 says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The language is similar as in the beginning of creation, when he said, let us make man in our image, body, soul, and spirit. Us, because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Who will go for us? 
And your role on earth is, is, is that important. I mean, you represent by the word of God and the spirit of God in you as a believer. You represent the living God. That is a big job. I don't care if you have one person to witness to. And I don't care if he rejects you and spends his eternity apart from God. It's still a big privilege to be the one to, to take the message of the gospel to somebody. Many will be saved. And so Isaiah says, then said I, here am I, send me. Isaiah is a man, he saw the um, kind of the demise of the kingdom up north. Uh, he saw his own nation. It was a sham. It was all a sham. And so he saw, you know, Uzziah was like, supposed to be great. He didn't save us. You know, what gives? But then he meets the Lord. And so when he is undone and he is unclean, that's when he says, here am I, send me. In verse 9 it says, and he said, so this is the Lord speaking, and he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. So Isaiah had a very hard job. God told him, you're going to face a lot of rejection, you know. Be lucky if one out of a thousand genuinely worships the Lord. I mean, that's probably about right in the world. And we're not much different, but, you know, God... Uh, God promises us that we get to teach the nations. You know, in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 19, there will be nations that come to Christ. There will be people that come to Christ. And so our job is not as hard as Isaiah's. And Isaiah did see a bit of revival in individuals. And that's the way revival always is, is that it always starts in, in one person's heart. It's always personal first before it's corporate. And so I don't know what we're waiting for to see revival because revival is today. It's here. Jesus' name is Jehovah is salvation. And if we focus on him, then we can have personal revival in our heart and genuine worship and, and humbly adore him like we're supposed to. And then we'll let God decide how everything else looks like, right? So Isaiah was to go and tell this people and, you know, these people wouldn't hear. And I've struggled with this passage a lot because I just think this is so sad. But God loves you so much that he respects your decision. And honestly, um, you know, even in this ministry, there may be many people here today that won't be here next week, that won't be here in a year, that won't be here in five years. And it's not because, you know, they didn't love God uh, now is that sometimes we, we allow a sin and it festers and, and it grows and our heart becomes hard. But God gives us over to our decisions. Um, there are many reasons why uh, this group will be smaller in the future. But I hope and we need to be praying that the biggest reason is because churches will be planted out of Midtown Baptist Temple. So we should be speaking that and speaking hope over this ministry and praying for that. Speak hope by praying for that to happen, is what I mean. And so the key point is count the cost up front. It is going to be hard. You guys will be rejected. You'll even have friends that marry the wrong person, and in five years they won't be here because their person got a job in such and such location. 
And these kinds of rejections, these kinds of losses will, will, will build up, and, and it'll tempt you to be discouraged as well. But just know that following the Lord is not going to be easy, and you are going to experience rejection, and you are going to experience loss. And so Isaiah 6.11, Isaiah is being very earnest. He said, Then said I, Lord, how long? And uh, in Psalm 13, like we hear in a lot of prayer vigils, for like my wife and I went to the Pittsburgh um, synagogue, Tree of Life synagogue vigil, and the pastor said, how long, O Lord, from Psalm 13? And he was very emotional, and, and we felt that that night. We wept with the Jewish people. We wept for the, lo- the extreme loss of those lives, those precious lives. But here, Isaiah says how long because he's counting the cost. And so it doesn't really look like when you just read it, he's not being emotional. It says, and he answered, the Lord answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate and the Lord have removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And so the closing question that I just want to leave here, uh, leave you guys with today to consider as the worship team comes up to finish out in a song and as Bible study leaders come up to receive people that want to pray, um, recognize that you need salvation or there's some kind of sin that is holding you. You have an Uzziah that is an obstruction to your view of Christ. Could even be something like parents, like your parents are saying like, ah, should be in the Catholic Church. Ah, you should be in synagogue. Don't go to that Baptist cult. I mean, like, whatever you've got to let go of to follow the Lord and His Word, do that. Um, do that at the cost of everything, whatever it costs. And uh, don't even worry about, don't worry about the cost. Put that on the cross of Jesus. And the closing question is, will I accept the call of God on my life by calling on Him today? Um, most will reject Christ, um, and I just encourage us and myself to stand with Jesus, even if nobody else will. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father, I do want to ask that as we close that you would help me and everybody else to make hard decisions, to count the costs, to commune with you in our hearts, as the psalmist says, and just to be still before you and to know that, that you're God and you will be exalted. And right now and right here, God, we say, let us see your, see your glory in our heart as we consider these things from your word and make us bold to go out this semester and to keep our vision fresh by continually keeping our eyes on you, Lord. Remove the Uzziahs from our hearts, those things that are keeping us from calling upon you, from seeing you, from communing with you. And God, free us of those things. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.